You are listening to the Lima Community Church Podcast. The following was recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio. Well, good morning. If it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, would you say amen? Amen. What a gift. As we continue in our sermon series this morning regarding the ways of God, we're going um, to start in what may seem like a funny place. We're going to start with some casual etymology, etymology, the study of words, uh, how they originate and breaking them down into their simplest form. Uh, we're going to start with a fun contemporary example. Uh, the word is ginormous, a combination of two words, right? Gigantic and enormous. And in 2003, because Will Ferrell's character, Buddy the Elf, brought it into common usage, ginormous now enjoys uh, a place officially in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Uh, So we could say that this is maybe a brief etymology of the word ginormous. The word that I want us to be thinking about this morning is not the word ginormous. Uh, It's the word orthodox. It's a word that comes from the Greek, and like ginormous, it's also made up of two forms. Uh, The first, ortho, means uh, straight. Uh, This is a a word that we see uh, in words like orthodontist and orthopedics. These doctors help make your teeth and your back straight. In the context of our word, orthodox, uh, you can think of straight as a path. It is a right path. It is correct. It's not a crooked path. In the second form, dox or doxa, means opinion or thinking or praise. So when we talk about orthodoxy, we're talking about right thinking, right opinions, proper praise. So what's an example of orthodoxy, of right thinking, of proper thinking? We could say that an orthodox statement that every tradition of the church would hold to, whether uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, would be that Jesus Christ is Lord. This would be an example of an orthodox statement. And orthodoxy is a good thing. It would be hard to create traditions of how we worship without making definitive statements of who we worship. And this is the Apostles' Creed, right? Throughout history, the church has had some form of creed to help guide its worship. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. These are orthodox creedal statements. And orthodoxy usually comes to us by way of tradition. Communion is an example of this. Twice a month, we all participate in this little traditional meal, and from it we learn and we relearn that God's body was broken and his blood was poured out for the life of the world. So maybe it's at this point that you're thinking, what does any of this have to do with the ways of God? Well, One of the problems with how we perceive orthodoxy or tradition is that when we're not careful, we can be tempted into thinking that God can only move in one particular way. He can only move in the ways in which we have come to experience him. And the problem with thinking that God can only move in one particular way is that he loves to keep popping up in other places. He loves to move in new ways, doing new things with different people that maybe you didn't expect him to be running around with. It can actually be a little frustrating. Just ask the folks that were watching Jesus run around with those tax collectors and 'er ne'er-do-wells. 
Well, this is a a theme that we pick up in our gospel reading today out of John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30. It's a short passage, but it's loaded with uh, a lot of context, so we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking it this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible near you, I'd encourage you to follow along. Otherwise, you can just look to the screens. This is John 10, and we're going to be starting with verse 22. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify to me. But you do not believe, because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What the Father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand and the Father and I are one. I think this is another one of those instances where it would be easy to point out the flaws of those scribes and Pharisees, those incompetent and arrogant religious people. But I think it'd be helpful to maybe set the context here a bit first. Almost 200 years before this episode with Jesus and these Jewish leaders, there lived a Syrian king who worshiped the Greek gods and he overtook Jerusalem and turned the temple into a place of worship for the Greek gods. He constructed an altar for Zeus on top of the altar for Yahweh. He turned the temple chambers into brothels in almost every conceivable way he had defiled the temple. And the people of Israel were not only without a house of worship, they were banned from worshiping entirely on the threat of execution. So this is where Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabees, arrive on the scene and incite a revolution that would overthrow the Syrians and reclaim the temple for the worship of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And it's from this victory that the people of Israel, God's people, vowed to never again let the temple be compromised. And the temple was then rededicated to the Lord. This victory is celebrated by Jewish people today, and um, we're probably more familiar with it uh, as the holiday of Hanukkah. Here in this passage, it's referred to as the festival of the dedication. If you remember, our passage started At that time, the festival of the dedication, Hanukkah, took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So why does this context matter? What does Hanukkah have to do with this episode and the disbelief of the Jewish leaders? Well, imagine this. Just a few generations ago, the homes of your ancestors were invaded. These invaders took the city, the economy, the government, and even the house of worship. These invaders did unthinkable things in the place that was once reserved for the worship of God and God alone. And after several years of oppression, your ancestors, they revolt, they regain control of the temple, and they promise to never again let the house of worship be taken. And every year for the last 175 years, your family has celebrated this promise and this rededication. But now, 
you're confronted with this prophet, this wild man who comes saying things like, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Well, this can't be. God himself is the one who gave us and dwells in the temple. Why does this man come to us saying that he's going to tear it down? We have been told by God, mind you, how to conduct our sacrifices. What in the world are you talking about? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. These law-abiding, tradition-observing religious leaders were convinced they knew how God was supposed to move. They were convinced that they would recognize the movement of God when they saw it, and this was not it. They thought the movement of God would look like what they had already seen, what they already knew. They were convinced that the movement of God would align with their orthodoxy, with their right thinking. And this Jesus that the people were calling a prophet was saying things that seemed contrary to what they knew of God. So here's the rub, right? Here's the tension. Hanukkah, the festival of the dedication, is orthodoxy. It's right thinking. Of course, we would set aside a day to praise God, to offer thanksgiving for the wonderful things he has done, to celebrate his faithfulness. And of course, the law is good. Of course, the law is orthodox. The law has taught us how to be the people of God for generations and generations. So the question becomes, what happens when orthodoxy collides with God moving in a new way? What happens when our tradition gets in the way of how God might be doing a new thing? When does right thinking cease to be right thinking? Well, in short, I think right thinking stops being right thinking when we think it means we have God figured out. Jesus says, why do you ask me who it is that I am? You know who I am. You've seen what I do and still you don't believe. He says, you wanna know why? Because you're not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the father's hand. The father and I are one. The Bible uses a lot of different metaphors to talk about our relationship to God. I think the metaphor of the sheep and the shepherd is interesting in part because I think it's kind of uh, common knowledge that sheep are kind of dumb. Without a shepherd, it seems like they don't have much of a capacity to fend for or protect themselves. Our lectionary readings this week actually revolve around this metaphor. Uh, our psalm we had read earlier, Psalm 23, is um, I'm sure a very familiar passage for most of us. It reads, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. 
this is a psalm that I'm sure has been a comfort for many of us at different seasons in our lives. But there's this passage in here that always sticks out to me because it seems uh, in ways unlike the others. Uh, We start in a very serene and calm, a very comfortable place. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. And then we take a strange turn. I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now the rod and the staff are not typically instruments of comfort. You don't use them to pet the sheep. You use them to whack the sheep, to wrangle them into the right direction, to spank them a little bit when they go off track. So why is the staff a comfort? Because my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. As the shepherd takes the flock to places they have never been before, we are comforted by the shepherd who cares enough to wrangle his flock into the right direction. The rod and the staff are comfort because they're instruments of guidance. When we go to places that tradition, that orthodoxy, that right thinking have not prepared us for, we listen for the voice of the shepherd and we're guided by his staff, sometimes whacking us into the right direction. So what happens when our tradition, our orthodoxy, hasn't prepared us for sharing a table in the presence of our enemies? What happens when our right thinking can't imagine a reality in which God is using our enemies, the wrong people, mind you, to usher in his kingdom? And the tough pill to swallow is that this is the scandal of the gospel, that God consistently chooses to use the wrong people. And we are a testament to that fact. What in the world does a room full of rough and rowdy Gentiles in Lima, Ohio, have anything to do with the God of Israel? Well, through Jesus, God has chosen to move amongst a group of people that these first century religiously conservative temple leaders probably could not conceive of. And as the 21st century religious people, we ought to keep that in mind. This morning, as we consider the ways of God, maybe we ought to reflect on the ways in which we, the religious people of our day, have been like the religious Jews of Jesus's day, rejecting the movement of God because we think we have him figured out. Rejecting the movement of God because, like Jonah, we're convinced we know who God can and cannot use without letting him have his say. So maybe this morning as we gather, we posture our hearts in a place of confession and humility, recognizing that when we're not careful, we too like to draw lines of who is in and who is out. But as we reflect on the ways of God, I want to reflect on this too. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Are we listening for the voice of the shepherd? 
Are we watching for the signs that he might be doing something new? And I realize that this is scary. Even the ancient Israelites coming out of the oppression of Egypt recognized that, well, maybe captivity was better than having to venture into the wilderness of the unknown. But we find comfort in this. As we step out into the unknown, as we strive to follow the shepherd, listening for the sound of his voice, the shepherd guides us with a rod and a staff. Jesus doesn't come to us this morning calling us to be perfect in orthodoxy. He doesn't come making sure that we have all the right answers. The shepherd comes calling his sheep to follow him. And you know what? Sheep are pretty dense. They tend to be a little dumb and a lot stubborn. But we follow one who guides, who corrects, who leads us if we have the humility to be led. It's a humble thing to be a sheep because the sheep aren't calling the shots. They're not in control. Jesus comes to us today teaching us how to live lives that are out of our control that we might learn to be led by a shepherd who wants to lead us in right paths for his name's sake. When confronted by the religious leaders in this passage, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I think that a common anxiety of the life of faith is discernment, learning how to discern. Am I hearing the voice of the shepherd, the voice of Jesus, or am I hearing other voices? Am I hearing my own voice? How is it that we come to know the voice, the will, the ways of God? I think the error that we often make is in thinking that in order to follow, we must first know. That is, in order to walk in obedience, we first have to have maybe an idea of sound doctrine or sound orthodoxy. We have to know the right things or at least have some sense of what it is that we're committing to before we commit to it. But this isn't how God has called his followers through the narrative of scripture. Listen to Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and he followed him. That's it. We learn to become like God, not by right thinking. We develop right thinking as a byproduct of following God. Here's an example of this idea. Several years ago, I started uh, dabbling in baking bread as a hobby. I've enjoyed it because it's incredibly tactile. It's incredibly immersive. Your hands are in the recipe every step of the way. Uh, I learned that most recipes are pretty simple. They're broken into four parts, flour, water, salt, and yeast. Your flour, when mixed and kneaded with water, forms gluten, which creates that chewiness that we enjoy about bread. Salt adds flavor, and yeast makes it rise so that it's not just a dense brick. And I started off making a lot of dense bricks. Because baking bread is so tactile, you spend so much time with your hands in the ingredients, you begin to learn a muscle memory of what dough is supposed to feel like at different points along the way. When you first mix all the ingredients, the dough is uh, loose and unformed. It doesn't really want to cooperate or be moved. 
But after several minutes of kneading and developing the gluten, you begin to feel it come together. With quick movements, you can even keep it from sticking to your fingers or the surface of the counter. And when it's ready to be formed into loaves, you can feel that the dough starts to become tight, but it's silky and smooth. This knowledge, this memory of how something ought to feel isn't something that you can develop from watching enough YouTube videos or reading enough books. At some point, you just have to do it and you have to keep doing it and keep doing it. You have to experience for yourself what it's supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to sound like, what it's supposed to smell like. And that might even mean failing a few times as you're starting out, but eventually we learn by doing. And I think that this too is the life of faith. For all of our right thinking, all of our orthodoxy, at some point we have to muster up the courage to follow, to do it. The funny paradox is that in following, we become better acquainted with the voice of the shepherd, which allows us to follow more closely, which allows us to hear better. And this is the cycle, right? The journey of Christian maturity. We learn by doing. And thinking about listening for the voice of God, learning to walk in the ways of God, I think there's this component of apprenticeship involved. How do we jump into a life of following the shepherd? We apprentice under those who have given their lives to following the shepherd. We watch and participate in the lives of those who have learned to discern the voice of God. This is why our gathering is so important. This is why Christian community is so important. We gather and continue to gather in order to learn how to walk in the ways of God. As we continue in this Easter season, the season of resurrection and new life, we recognize that God in the person of Jesus has done something radically new. In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, we bear witness to God who is continuing to be at work in creation, breathing new life and making all things new. And the questions that we reflect on this morning is how might God be doing something new in our lives? How might the shepherd be leading us to places that we've never been? And how is God calling us to follow him in this journey of making things new? God is speaking to us this morning. God is calling us on a strange adventure. Might we have the humility of sheep to be led by our shepherd. If you've heard truth this morning, would you say amen? Amen. Well, I invite you to stand and join me in prayer before we dismiss. Father God, this morning, we are thankful and we're grateful for the gift of life. Thank you for the changing of the seasons. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for the, for the rain. We're reminded in the gift of rain that you are the giver and the sustainer of life. Would you help us to walk in humility today? 
Give us the, the courage, empower us to be led by you. Help us to hear your voice, to become better acquainted with the ways in which you are moving. Would you guide us by your spirit today and would you make us like you? We love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace this morning. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, visit limacommunitychurch.com.